0: would uh, open up your scriptures to Exodus chapter 23. It's good to be back this morning. Sarah and the baby are doing good, and uh, um, hopefully they'll be with us next week. Uh, if you would uh, stand as we read uh, verses 1 through 9. We stand for the word of God. <clears throat> Exodus 23, starting in verse 1. You shall not spread a false report. shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. You shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so to pervert justice, nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey— going astray, you shall bring it back to him. If you see the donkey of one who hates you lying down under its burden, you shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in his lawsuit. Keep far from a false charge and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked." And you shall take no bribe, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. You shall not oppress a sojourner. You know the heart of a sojourner, for you are sojourners in the land of Egypt. Let's pray. Dear God, our Father in heaven, Lord, God, we thank you for the wisdom that we see in your law, Lord, the moral law being applied, Lord, in such an amazing way to a nation, your people, Israel, in the Old Testament. God, I pray this morning, as we go through this passage, Lord, that we not only see the wisdom, Lord, of these laws, but we also see your character, Lord, behind the foundation of the law in the Old Testament, Lord. And through that, Lord, I pray that we See application and how to apply these principles in our life as we try to image you lord As your sons and daughters as the church lord And so god, I pray as we go through this passage we see uh, Lord you more clearly and and therefore uh, Lord That we can apply how how to live lord in a way that would honor you so be with us lord as we Go through this passage in your son's name. Amen. Maybe see be seated. <clears throat> this morning, as you can tell, we're picking up where we left off in the book of Exodus. We're slowly walking through again what theologians call the book of the covenant. And that's really Exodus chapters 21 through chapters 23, meaning we're, we're almost through uh, the entire book of the covenant in, in this portion of Scripture. Uh, This book of the covenant is mostly civil laws for Israel. It was meant to govern Israel, these laws. Today, as we've seen throughout the law so far, we're going to see another pattern. These patterns that we've seen in the law were to help Israel memorize the law and really help them interpret the law. The pattern in our passage this morning, you may have noticed kind of a back and forth in it. It it simply goes like this, A-B-A-B. The A's in this portion of scripture are the, the application of the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness. The B's are the application of the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. Now again, this is different than how we typically write in uh, modern Western culture. We, we write, we've been taught to write in high school and in college more something like this. Point A, point B, point C, therefore conclusion, point D. Right? A, B, C, you build in a logical argument and you get to the conclusion. But that's not how Hebrews typically wrote, especially in the Old Testament. Hebraic writing often had more of a rhythm to it. And, and we've seen it in, in throughout the, the law. You see it a lot in the Psalms, but it's in our passage this morning. We have a back and forth again, A, B, A, B. And because of this, and because it's somewhat foreign to how we typically interpret and write, Uh, I want to switch this passage around and and put the A's and B's together. So there's two parts of the sermon this morning. We're going to group the A's together. That's the application of the ninth commandment. You shall not bear false witness. And then we're going to group the B's together, which is the application of the sixth commandment. You shall not murder. So let's start with the A's, the the application of the ninth commandment. That's the first part of this sermon. And, And before we get there, let me just... Say, I think most people interpret the Ninth Commandment, if you're memorizing the Ten Commandments, as something like this, you shall not lie. And most of us understand the Ninth Commandment. And as we went through the Ten Commandments, uh, we know that the Ninth Commandment definitely covers lying because it's about truth. It's not stated that way. It's stated like this. You shall not bear false witness. Why is it stated this way? Well, if you remember back to the Ten Commandments, The Ten Commandments weren't given in a vacuum. They were given to a nation, a people, right? God's people, the nation of Israel. Therefore, the immediate context of the Ten Commandments was Israel, a nation, not necessarily the church, not necessarily you and me. This is why the the Ten Commandments, and especially the Ninth Commandment, uses this legal terminology. You shall not bear false witness. Now, the Hebrew word translated witness means a person who can testify to what he has seen. A person who can testify to what he has seen. In the the Old Testament, this word witness is used 69 times, and it's almost always used in a legal sense, a a witness in a crime or a a legal situation. It's a legal witness. The ninth commandment uses, again, legal terminology. Exodus 20, verse 16 is where we find the ninth commandment. It says this, you shall not bear false witness against your neighbor. This law was to protect Israel from the abuse of its legal system, to protect truth and from the abuse of its legal system. Therefore, in our passage this morning, We see the application of the ninth commandment, laws given to Israel, applying the ninth commandment. Look at verse 1. It says this, You shall not spread a false report. That's very similar to you shall not bear false witness. Right Again, verse 1, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. Now let's break this verse down a little bit. A malicious witness is someone who causes trouble by deliberately lying in court. Again, that word witness is a, a legal word, right? Someone who, who deliberately lies in court. Again, legal terminology. Therefore, the Israelites—this is a law—the Israelites were not to join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. Now, how does this happen? How do you join hands with a wicked man to be a malicious witness. Well, this is where the beginning of the verse, I think, brings some clarity in, in, in understanding this. It says this, you shall not spread a false report. You shall not spread a false report. Now, I know a lot of you use the NASB, and the NASB translates this verse, you shall not bear a false report, But that word bear, the Hebrew word that's translated spread or bear, is not the same Hebrew word that's translated you shall not uh, bear false witness. It's a different Hebrew word. Therefore, I think spread is actually a better translation. The ESV uses the word spread. The Hebrew words mean something like this, to carry off or to take along with you, to to carry it around with you and and to pass it on. In other words, to spread spread. Now, again, I think most of us translate the ninth commandment as something to do with lying, which it does. It covers lying, right? You shall not lie. But I really believe a more direct correlation or a more direct application is actually gossiping. You shall not gossip. Or again, look at verse one. You shall not spread a false report. Philip Ryken writes this about the evils of gossiping. He says this, The victim of gossip never has a chance to explain their circumstances, clarify their motives, or to correct the misconceptions. Instead, they are charged, tried, and convicted in the court of private opinion. In both the Old and New Testament, in Israel and the church— Gossip is considered a horrendous evil, a horrendous evil. Let me just show you what I mean as an application to us in the church. Listen to Romans one verse twenty-eight, and if you're familiar with Romans one, right, God is 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 displaying his his judgment on a on a people. It says this in verse twenty-eight, and since they, this is. The, the people being judged, the un, unregenerate man, and since they did not see fit to acknowledge God, God gave them up to a debased mind. That's the judgment. In fact, this is the final judgment in this passage where God just lets the, the group of people, the, the, uh, lets them over, gives them up to a debased mind. Well, what's a debased mind? Well here's an explanation by Paul a deep-based mind to, to do whatever ought not to be done. They were filled with all manners of uh, all manner of unrighteousness, evil, covetousness, malice, right? They're full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, maliciousness. And listen to this. They are gossips. Did you hear that? It's always caught me off guard in Romans 1, uh, that one line there, gossip, that, that, that Paul, inspired by the Holy Spirit, meaning God, is grouping gossiping with a list of some of the most horrendous evils right, as a sign of God's judgment on a people. In other words, when, when a people gets to the point where gossip is just normal, right, that's a sign of God's judgment on that people. Therefore, God's people are to stay away from gossip. Again, look at verse 1. It says this. You shall not spread a false report. That's gossip. You shall not join hands with a a wicked man to be a malicious witness. In other words, when when someone is gossiping, the command is you shall not join hands with them in the Old Testament. How do you do this? How do you not join hands with the gossip? Well, I think there's some application that we can apply to us, the church, today. Again, this is the laws for Israel. This was a law that, that is given to the Old Testament nation of Israel. But the principles behind the law still apply today. And here's some practical application. When someone is gossiping to you right, about someone else, don't join in. Don't join hands with them. Change the subject. Walk away. Or maybe, and and this will take some boldness, but this is probably the correct action, rebuke the gossiper. And and that word seems so harsh, that word rebuke. But rebuking someone doesn't always have to be hard. You could just say something like this, hey, we probably shouldn't be talking about this. You can rebuke someone very gently when they're gossiping, right? Don't be a listening ear, in other words, to gossip. You know, I, it's hard to do that because isn't it our nature to want to hear gossip? <laughs> it, it, it's just, by default, we want to hear gossip. Right? It's, a, it's a human tendency. We'd rather hear something bad about our neighbor than something good. In fact, this is why I believe when you listen to news, that's pretty much all you hear is bad news. Why? Because that's the audience. If you had a news source that just gave good news, no one would listen to it. It's just our human tendency. But listen, if a gossiper has no one to gossip to, guess what? The gossip start, or stops before it ever starts. And just a side note, again, because I think this applies. The principle applies, right? If we as a church, and and I just want to say I think our church is good at this, but to continue to be good at this is my encouragement this morning. If we as a church have no ears for gossip, then wicked men and wicked women won't find a place here. They'll either turn from their wicked actions, repent from being gossipers, or they will leave because there's just no room for gossiping. Again, both the Old and New Testament, God's people are to stay away from gossip. But it's not just gossip that they are to stay away from. Look at verse 2. Exodus 23, verse 2 says this, "...you shall not fall in with the many to do evil, nor shall you bear witness in a lawsuit, siding with the many so as to pervert justice." There's always a great temptation to side with the many, even if they're wrong, right? Verse 2 is saying just because the majority believe something is true doesn't make it true or right. Instead, the righteous man always seeks truth and justice even when it's not popular. And sometimes standing up for what is right is unpopular. In fact, often it's unpopular. If you just look at the history of mankind, the majority is often wrong. And it's courageous individuals that have stood up and pointed that out. Therefore, in verse 2, it says this, you shall not fall in with the many to do evil. Again, this is the application of the ninth commandment. There's different ways of corrupting the truth. C- gossip can corrupt the truth. It can pervert justice. Right? But also, the majority's opinion— can corrupt the truth and pervert justice. But there's another way that truth can be corrupted, and and this may be surprising. In fact, verse 3 is a very interesting verse. It says this, Nor shall you be partial to a poor man in his lawsuit. Now, it's interesting because most people would just assume that a judge or a witness would be partial to a rich man, not a poor man. Someone powerful, someone influential— But here, I really believe we see God's wisdom within the law. Sometimes, the poor or the oppressed has man's sympathy and therefore is favored. Verse 3 is a command for the Israelites to not be partial just because someone is poor or even oppressed. There's so much wisdom here. Like I said, I, I really believe we see God's wisdom. In this verse, because in today's society, we hear about identity groups often. Identity groups that are oppressed, or identity groups that are powerless. That word power is such a popular word nowadays, and powerless. Those that are in power, those that aren't in power. And within these oppressed groups, identity groups, they are to be favored or believed automatically, no matter what the evidence says. But the Bible so clearly teaches that true justice shows no partiality or favoritism. Just because you may be sympathetic to a person's struggle in life, which is appropriate, doesn't mean you should show partiality, because partiality destroys truth and therefore destroys justice. And it's not just the poor. Look at verse 6. Again, we see the the A's are getting put together, so we're skipping down to verse 6. It says this, You shall not pervert the justice due to your poor in a lawsuit. In other words, you shall not pervert justice by favoring the rich. Do you see the perfect balance in these two verses? Verse 3, don't show favoritism to the poor. Verse 6, don't show favoritism to the rich. In other words, don't show favoritism. Period. Period. There should be no partiality when it comes to justice. That's why we say justice is blind. It's about the truth. Leviticus 19.15, I think, just makes this super clear. It says this, You shall do no injustice in court. You shall not be partial to the poor or defer to the great. But in righteousness shall you judge... Your neighbor. Again, just perfect balance. Now, this is the civil law. Once again, you're going to hear me say this over and over again, meaning it's the application of the moral law, the Ten Commandments, to a particular situation, the nation of Israel. But the principles behind the civil law transcends both covenants because the moral law transcends both covenants. So, there's things that we can learn and apply to our lives, and I believe this is so clearly seen in this passage, and I just want to show you because it's so clearly seen. If you would, turn to James chapter 2, verse 1. James chapter 2, verse 1. This is the New Testament. This is an epistle to the church, right, to us. Verse 1 says this, my brothers, show no partiality. It's the same principle, right, favoritism. Show no partiality as you hold the faith in our Lord Jesus Christ, the Lord of glory. For if a man wearing a gold ring and fine clothing comes into your assembly, right, the assembly being the church, what we're doing right now, and a poor man in shabby clothing also comes in. And if you pay attention to the one who wears the fine clothing and say, you sit here in a good place, while you say to the poor man, you sit over there or sit down at my feet, have you not then made distinctions among yourselves and become judges with evil thoughts? In other words, you have judged the person by their wealth, by externals, not their heart. Verse 5. Listen, my beloved brothers, has not God chosen those who are poor in the world to be rich in faith and heirs of the kingdom, which he has promised to those who love him? But you have dishonored the poor man. Are not the rich the ones who oppress you and the ones who drag you into court? Are they not the ones who blaspheme the honor name, honorable name by which you were called? if you really fulfill the royal law according to the scripture, you shall love your neighbor as yourself, you are doing well, but if you show partiality partiality because of wealth, looks, ethnicity, age, gender, you are committing sin and are convicted by the law as transgressors in other words all men are created in the image of god therefore all are valuable it doesn't ma- matter if they are poor or rich we are to show no partiality especially when it comes to the gospel and those that we welcome welcome in here to, to hear the gospel Now turn back to Exodus chapter 23, verse 7. Again, the reason I went to James is I just want to show you that these principles transcend both covenants. Even though the, the direct law may not apply to us, the church, the principles behind the laws do apply to us. And we're going to see that even more clearly as this passage keeps going. Again, verses 1 through 3. And verses 6 through 8 go together. They're the application of the ninth commandment. So we're jumping down to verses 6 through 8. Again, the ninth commandment is you shall not bear false witness. In other words, you shall not corrupt the truth. In our passage, God is commanding Israel to not let gossip corrupt the truth. To not let the majority's opinion corrupt the truth. And or someone's wealth, rich or poor, corrupt the truth. And this is because for Israel—I want you to think about this—for Israel, they were, there were serious consequences for the perversion of the truth. Look at verse 7. 7 says this, Keep far from a false charge, and do not kill the innocent and righteous, for I will not acquit the wicked. It's very interesting, because you get to verse 7, it says, do not kill the innocent. Well, what's what's killing the innocent and righteous have to do with bearing false witness? Well, in Israel, especially for Israel, it's true today, but especially in, in ancient civilizations and the nation of Israel, bearing false witness could lead to death. Listen to what one commentator wrote about this. He says this, in the days before forensic evidence, almost everything depended on witnesses. Usually it came down to one person's word against another's, and since many crimes were treated as capital offenses, often the defendant's life was at stake. The words of a false witness could be fatal. Therefore, the protection of the truth was extremely important for Israel to thrive as a nation. And this leads to verse 8, a final way truth can be distorted. If you look, verse 8 says this, And you shall... Take no bribe. Why? Well, for a bribe blinds the clear-sighted and subverts the cause of those who are in the right. I love how this is phrased. A, a bribe blinds the clear-sighted. It blinds. Right? How? Because the power of a bribe can cause people to ignore clear evidence, right? to suppress the truth that's obvious. Right? It blinds the clear-sighted. It distorts the truth. So again, this is the application of the ninth commandment. God's people are to protect the truth. Right? That's because no legal system can survive without truth. This was commands for the nation of Israel, for the good of Israel. No legal system can survive without truth, without valuing truth, without protecting truth, without seeking truth. The Ninth Commandment is really foundational to a just and free society. This is why postmodernism has really been the downfall of Western civilization. Say truth is relative or there is no truth. Well, if there is no truth, then there is no justice. This is what God was protecting with these laws. Brings us to the second part of our sermon this morning in the first part right, The application of the ninth commandment the second part is the application of the sixth commandment. You shall not murder You shall not murder and before we jump into the passage. I, I just want to remind us about the ten commandments Right the ten commandments uh, what we learned as we went through them are, are the most extreme examples of a particular type of sin The most extreme examples of a particular type of sin. In other words, you shall not murder is the most extreme example of hatred. Murder is hatred acted out to the fullest extent. Therefore, the sixth commandment really prohibits not just murder, but also everything related to murder, everything underneath murder, even hatred itself. And This is exactly how Jesus interpreted the sixth commandment. Matthew five twenty one says this, You have heard that it was said to those of old, you shall not murder. And whoever murders will be liable to judgment. But I say to you that everyone who is angry with his brother will be liable to judgment. Whoever insults his brother will be liable to the council. And whoever says you fool will be liable to the hell of fire. Now this teaching, I want to be clear, is was extremely radical to those that were hearing it for the first time, Jesus proclaiming this truth. In fact, it's still radical to this day, right? If you just hate someone within your heart, that's murdering them within the heart. I mean, that's a radical teaching. But I want to be clear. This wasn't a new teaching by Jesus. Jesus didn't make this teaching up. And I think a lot of us get to the Sermon on the Mount and think that Jesus is adding to the Old Testament But he's not. He's just interpreting the laws in the Old Testament. This is the sixth commandment. And we see the same exact application in verses 4 and 5 in Exodus 23. Look at verse 4. It says this. If you meet your enemy's ox. Now, enemy is a good translation. It's someone who is hostile towards you. There's a temptation to hate those that are hostile toward us, right? To those who want to harm us. In fact, I think most, or many at least, would say hating those that that are are enemies is just a natural, reasonable response. But look at verse 4. If you meet your enemy's ox, or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. In other words, God's people are not to hate their enemies. Instead, they are to be kind, generous, compassionate, There to help them if they are in need. You know what? This is where Jesus gets his teaching in Matthew 5. He takes the principles that we see in the Old Testament. He's applying them in his sermon in Matthew 5, verse 43, when he says, You have heard that it was said you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemies. That seems reasonable to most. But, verse 44 says, But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. That's not a new teaching. Look at verse 4. If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, what are you to do? You are to love him. You are to help him. You, you shall bring it, right, the ox or donkey, back to him. Verse 5, it keeps going. If you, if you see the donkey of one who hates you, a person that hates you, that wants to harm you even, lying down under its burden... You shall refrain from leaving him with it. You shall rescue it with him. In other words, help him out. The Israelites were not to treat their enemies with hatred. They're not to return hatred with hatred. Because that would be breaking the sixth commandment. You shall not murder... Hatred is murder within the heart. Instead, the Israelites were to show compassion, love, kindness toward their enemies, toward the one who hates them. Now, I want to remind you of the pattern because, again, this helps us interpret the passage. It goes A, B, A, B. We've already put the A's together, the the ninth commandment, the application of the ninth commandment, you shall not bear false witness. So let's put the B's together to help us interpret verse 9, the application of the sixth commandment, you shall not murder. So 9 goes with the previous verses that I just read. It says this, verse 9, you shall not oppress a sojourner. Again, this is the application of the sixth commandment. A sojourner is a foreigner. It's a foreigner that is traveling through a, a different land. So for an Israelite, it would be a foreigner traveling through the land of Israel when they have their land. And foreigners are often, especially in antiquity, but even, even to this day, right, foreigners are often just considered enemies. I mean, think about it. Almost all of Israel's enemies were what? Foreigners. So there's this skepticism of any foreigner, even if it wasn't an enemy foreigner. You just don't trust a foreigner coming through your land. Therefore, verse 9 is talking about loving one's enemy. Right? Don't treat them with oppression, right? You shall not oppress a sojourner. And why? Why not? Because, look at the second part, it says this, you, you know the heart of a sojourner. For you were sojourners in the land of Egypt. Now, I mentioned this last time I preached, I think it was last time I preached, that, that the Egyptians both treated Israel well and horribly. In end of Genesis, right, when the famine hit, right, the, the Israelites, the, the small family, ended up in Egypt and were saved from the famine. And the, the Egyptians protected them, gave them a land, gave them food, gave them an opportunity to grow. They treated them extremely well. But then we get to the book of Exodus, and they're treated horribly. So the Israelites knew what it was like to be treated well by foreigners, right, in a foreign land, and to be treated horribly And therefore, they were to treat foreigners in their lands well, as brothers, not oppressing them. Don't hate them, in other words. Don't murder them within your heart. Instead, treat them well. Treat them with love. Once again, Israel was to love their enemies. Now, there's a lot more to this, and there's a lot of rabbit holes that we can chase down going through the whole Old Testament. Um, When you look at the Bible as a whole, especially the Old Testament, God used Israel a lot of the times to be his instrument of judgment on evil nations, and we see Israel going to war with their enemies. And again, we could chase all those different uh, rabbit holes and talk about what it means to go to war with the enemy, but I've been trying as we've been going through the book of Exodus to really just stick to the passage because almost every passage, especially in the law, there's all these different rabbit holes that you can chase. And and I want to stay in our passage this morning, right? And not not try to answer all those questions. Instead of of looking at what it means to to love your enemy as as a nation, I want to ask this question. How does this apply to us? I have, again, pointed... over and over again that this is a civil law. Most of us are confused with the civil law and how to apply it or if it even does apply to us. Remember, it's the application of the moral law, the Ten Commandments, which transcends both covenants. It's the application of the moral law to a specific situation. The nation of Israel, meaning not us, but... That doesn't mean the principles behind these laws don't apply to us. In fact, not only do the principles behind these laws apply to us, but we clearly see God's character in these laws. This is why we're spending so much time in the law. And the principle behind the laws that we just went over really are simple love your enemies, (laughs) love your enemies. In fact, if you would, turn to Matthew 5, verse 43. And one of my goals this morning is to show that these principles transcend both covenants, even though the specific law may not transcend to the church. The principles behind them do. And this is where Jesus gets a lot of his teaching in the New Testament. This is where a lot of the apostles get their teaching, because they're taking principles and applying them to the church. Look what Jesus says in verse 43. Matthew 5, verse 43, says this. You have heard that it was said, you shall love your neighbor and hate your enemy. Now, this was a common teaching in, in Jesus' day. This is what the Jews were taught. And, and for the most part, this is what a lot of people would believe, right? To love your neighbor, love those that are peaceful with you, and hate those who hate you. Look at verse 44. But I say to you, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you. Now, this was a radical teaching. Again, it was a radical teaching when Jesus taught it. It's still a radical teaching today. But it shouldn't have been surprising because Jesus was just interpreting the Old Testament. Again, Exodus 23, 4 says this, If you meet your enemy's ox or his donkey going astray, you shall bring it back to him. You know what that is? Loving your enemy. Jesus is teaching the principle behind that law in his sermon. He's teaching the principles that we find in Exodus chapter 23 in his sermon. It's a very familiar sermon to us, right? This is a very familiar sermon phrase, but I say, do you love your enemies? Verse 44. That's nothing new. But here's where it gets interesting. Look at verse 45. So that, so that you may be sons of your Father who is in heaven. In other words, when we love our enemies, we are acting like our Father. We are imaging God. For he—that's God—for he makes his sun rise on the evil and on the good, and he sends rain on the just and on the unjust. In other words, God is gracious to both the good and the evil, the just and the unjust, his children and his enemies. He gives them both life, rain, seasons, the sun— Air to breathe, hearts that beat, rain that falls. God is gracious to both his children and his enemies. Now, I want to be clear on that. That grace will run out at some point for non-believers. They will face God's just wrath after death. So if you're not a believer this morning, you need to understand that. Don't take God's grace for granted. But we really see God's heart in this passage. By his common grace, the the grace that's common to all mankind, by his common grace, he shows love towards his enemies. Which leads to the application which is found in verse 46. For For if you love those who love you, what reward do you have? Do not even the tax collectors do the same, right? Do not even evil men love those who love them? This is like gain mentality, right? You you can go to the prisons and see men that love those who love them and hate those who hate them. Verse 47, And if you greet only your brothers, what more are you doing than others? Do not even the Gentiles do the same? In other words, God's people are to be different. We are to love both our neighbor and... And our enemies. And here's the motivation, verse 48. You, therefore, must be perfect as your heavenly Father is perfect. God's character is foundational to the law. It's foundational to all the law we see in the Old Testament and in the New Testament. We are to image God as his son and daughters. So this is where I want to end this morning, the sermon. I mean, there's just so many different principles. Every time I go through the law, there's different principles, truths, things we can learn about God, and or applications we can apply to our lives. We could just be in Exodus for the rest of my career as a pastor. Some of you are still wondering if we will, but... But I want to end here today. We are to love our enemies because God has loved his enemies. You know what's interesting about this teaching? And this is one of the reasons I want to spend some time here as we end. In fact, what's interesting about all of Scripture's teaching about enemies, and let me just say this, doesn't the Bible have a lot to say about enemies? I mean, just read the Psalms. You read through the Psalms, and it seems like the majority of them are men crying out to God about their enemies, right? that their enemies are surrounding them, or rejoicing because their enemies have left them, or or something about enemies. But here's what's interesting: I, I can just honestly say, in my life growing up, I've never felt like I had a, a true enemy. I've had a lot of people that, that don't like me. But not someone that just absolutely hated me because of who I was. And I think this is, is pretty common for many modern American Christians. We, we haven't grown up with threats of enemies right beside us, maybe distantly overseas. And you see it on the news or something. Not right there in reality where, where you can feel them. And I want to be clear on this. This is very unusual for for Christians in the history of the church. We are in the minority, not the majority. Historically, Christians have faced all types of persecutions and enemies. Real enemies. But not us. And I've thought about this a lot. Just, I like to pray through the Psalms. I've talked about that often. And I find myself kind of skipping Psalms that talk a lot about enemies and And I've thought a lot lot about this because it somewhat bothers me because that means there's whole portions, large portions of Scripture about enemies that it's just hard for me to relate to. Let me say this. Doesn't it feel like that is somewhat changing? Let me just give you an example. After Roe versus Wade was overturned, Someone spray-painted what I believe is a hateful message on the fence of our local pregnancy center. We had elders from our church go over there, like, right away and get rid of it, so it wasn't up there very long. In fact, you may have saw on the news just recently a hateful message that was spray-painted all over uh, uh, the Focus on the Family board in Colorado, uh, blaming a mass shooting on them somehow. You know, that night, uh, a number of pregnancy centers after Roe versus Wade was overturned were vandalized across the United States, and we saw that. And I remember praying that week with the staff at the pregnancy center after the vandalism and the, what was going across the, the nation. And I remember just thinking, and we, we talked about this a little bit, and f- thinking and feeling like some of these passages about enemies, the first time in my life kind of had a new meaning like, I could somewhat relate to them. Not to the extent of what Christians have gone through in the history of the church, but but it's just a different level than I've ever felt before. Let me just ask the question, doesn't it, doesn't it feel like there are those out there that truly hate us just because we're Christians? Just because we stand for the truth? So, the application of verse 44 may be more real Than it's ever been before. Love your enemies. And pray for those who persecute you. I just think that's interesting. But it's not the application I really want to point out this morning. It's actually the motivation I want to focus on. And that's verse 48. It says this. You therefore must be perfect. As your heavenly father is perfect. In other words. We are to love our enemies, again, those who hate us, because God loved his enemies perfectly. And who are his enemies before there were ever sons and daughters? Us. You and me. Romans 5.10 says this, For if while we were enemies of God... While we were enemies, we were reconciled to God by the death of his son. Did you hear that? God, in other words, loved his enemies so much that he sent his son, his one and only son, whom he loved, to die for their sins. And this is the heart of God. A God who loves his enemies. John 3.16 says this, For God so loved the world. What's the world? It's man. Man who rebelled. Man who hated God. God so loved his enemies. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. In other words, he he poured out his wrath on Jesus, his only son. the, The wrath that... His enemies deserve, not his son. That, this is why he did it. Whoever believes in him should not perish, but have eternal life. That, his enemies would live and be adopted into his family. Therefore, how can we not love our enemies? How can we not pray for those who persecute us? And God showed so much love to his enemies. So much love. That's our motivation. We are to love our enemies because God loved us. Let's pray. Dear God, our Father in heaven, This has to be one of the hardest commands in Scripture, Lord. To love, to to be kind, to help those who hate us. Yet how better could we image you as your sons and daughters, as believers, than to love those who hate us. Because that's exactly what you did with us. Rebellious men and women who hated you. Yet even while we were enemies of you, you sent your son, the son whom you love, who never rebelled, you sent him to come and die on the cross. I just, I think of Jesus as the nails are getting put in his hands, praying for his enemies. Forgive them. God, give us that character. When we are tempted to respond on the internet or face-to-face in a hateful way, I pray we would be reminded of Jesus on the cross and respond truthfully in love. In your son's name, amen.